one of the things that I discovered on my sabbatical is how much I missed the church while being gone. <coughs> I don't understand how people can miss week after week after week after week a gathering together. My heart is longing in many different ways for the church. I've also discovered that uh, one of the reasons that I love uh, pastoral ministry is, is because I love seeing how God does this amazing work in people's lives of of changing them from broken, cold, distraught people to people with, with hope. I, I love seeing how God does this. I, I love doing this work of being able to sit across the table, being able to deliver the word on Sunday morning, be able to be in a missional community and share life on life. I love those kind of things. So even though ministry, pastoral ministry, can be quite challenging, and I'll be honest, it can even be emotionally painful at times, there's nothing better than to be only two, three feet away from a person who is professing their faith in Christ for the first time. There's something about seeing all the lights and bells and whistles go off in their head and going, I get it. I get it. This, this Jesus that you've been talking about, I get it. I, the person that you have been talking about as if he is a real person is not just an idea, he's alive, he's real, and he's mine. It, it's, a, it's a great joy to see that, that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit with right in, in front of your very own eyes and know that you just witnessed something not only supernatural, but you witnessed something eternal. Think about it. It's not just a supernatural change that's going on, but it is something that is an eternal change that has happened. But what's more, my joy is, is even magnified to know that what is happening is not only just amazing, but somehow I was able to play a role. That God allowed me in his wisdom to be a part of this life-changing transaction, that supernatural eternal change, to think that biblical words flowing from a broken human being like me land on another person's heart and soul, resulted in someone being changed forever. In other words, there is something absolutely incredible about being a part of God's supernatural work in saving people's souls. Our text today, for me, it feels a little disjointed because the last sermon I delivered was back in August. So I'm hoping everybody took the time to reread the whole transcript from my last sermon to catch up and feel up to speed. But if you remember, last time we were talking, it there was this compelling call that we heard back in August that the word is near to you. And not, on, not only that, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There, there's something that happens. The word is near, and anybody who calls on the name of the Lord there, there's a salvation that comes to them. Today we are going to be talking about the beauty of evangelism. Now I know some of you, you hear that word evangelism and you go, okay, there are people who do that. Pastor, you're in. Hey, no touchbacks. I don't want to be a part of that. That's your gifting. You went to seminary. You got your training. You leave the church. That's what we paid you for. You do the evangelism. You do all the drawing. You do all that kind of work. We'll sit back and enjoy the new people, right? And there's fear because you, you feel inadequate. 
all, all those things. What, what, what if I say the wrong thing? What if when I share the gospel, they're going to look at me like I got 12 heads and they're going to say, you know what? You're the weird Christian guy. I knew it. And you feel like you're going to lose some kind of social standing. You're going to lose some kind of relationship. And so evangelism is this strange monster that you really want nothing to do with. And you're going to relegate it to the professional. But the reality, our text here says, no, 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 no. It's for you. Where, where I left off in August, August was about this invitation to be saved. And this week is about how that message of salvation is to be delivered. If the gospel is absolutely glorious, and if the message is wide open to anyone who would come, then how does that message, what is the vehicle by which the message goes forward? Let me put it this way, in a way that kind of makes it practical for us. Maybe helps us to dream a little bit more. What would it take for us, as a congregation, to adjust all of our services in order to accommodate the hundreds of people who are being baptized? because they have been recently converted. Thinking about 80% of our county is not in a church on any given weekend. What would it look like for the, the music ministry, the, the preaching ministry, the diaconal ministry, the, the ministry of shepherding, the children's ministry, uh, all those ministries, what would it look like that we would have to adjust everything suddenly because we lived into and we realized our call is to be the vehicle by which the gospel goes out and which we have to share, we feel compelled to share this good news of Christ. What would it look like? So Romans 10, 14 through 21, helps us to understand the, the various challenges and the method and the absolute beauty of how the gospel is communicated. But in order to see Paul's message here, I want to examine the text in a, kind of a bit differently. We're, we're going to jump to the end, deal with verses 16 through 21, and then we're going to jump back to 14 and 15 to make some connections here. So what we see here first, when it comes to uh, the methodology and the beauty and the challenges of, uh, of how this gospel is communicated, we've got to understand some realities, right? And there's a, a very sad reality that we see here in verses 16 through 21. There's a sad failure of Israel to believe in the Messiah. The promised Messiah is coming, but there was a failure on their behalf to pursue this righteousness because they were pursuing a certain righteousness based on the law. And we see that through in, in chapters 11 or 9 through 11. They were, they were pursuing a righteousness based on the law instead of righteousness that's based on Christ. It's part of the, the shocking story of God's judgment on his own people. And it's part of this stunning, more beautiful display of mercy on God's behalf to the Gentiles. And so we look at verses 16 through 21, and it shows us that the effective preaching of the gospel is often resisted. And yet there's no other way for people to be saved Friends, the resisted gospel is still a gospel worth preaching. Let me say that one more time. The resisted gospel is still the gospel worth preaching and sharing. But what happens happened to Israel says something negative about them, but not something negative about the gospel. 
And verse 16 kind of inter interrupts this flow of thought from verses 14 and 15 with the following statement. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Paul uses this phrase to emphasize that merely hearing the gospel is not enough. So your mere attendance and hearing me through amplification is not enough. Hearing is not enough. The gospel is something that requires a response. It requires a response. Back in August, we heard Paul say that the Jews did not submit to God's righteousness. So failing to believe in Christ is more than just not believing. It's actually rebelling. It's turning against. Not believing in what I tell you is one thing, but not believing in what God tells you about you and your sin and Jesus is a whole nother thing entirely. It bothers me when my kids don't believe and don't follow through on what I say. And there's a little bit of wrath going on there. But it's a whole nother thing when we do that to God. When we, when the people hear what about their sin, prophet after prophet after prophet came to Israel, telling them about their sin and telling them, listen, this is who you are. But there is a, a promised one coming. Friends, it is dangerous, and not just dangerous, it is eternally dangerous. Such was the problem with Israel. They refused to respond to what they heard. They were disobedient. So Paul takes Isaiah 53, and he uses Isaiah 53, verse 1, to reinforce what he is saying. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's kind of, who? Who has believed? And it is in the context of Isaiah 53 that this makes this reference so powerful. Isaiah 53 is just one of these classic Old Testament kind of passages referring to the suffering Messiah, the, the one who is going to come. Listen to verses 3, 3 4, and 5 of Isaiah 53. And it's, it should be very familiar, especially around the time of, of Lent, right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But if he was but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jews failed to believe this gospel. They rejected the Messiah and stumbled over Christ. And it was this stumbling and this disobedience to the Lordship of Christ that makes the history of Israel sad. In verse 17 then enters the picture here as a, a summary of what was said in verses 14 and 15 with particular emphasis on Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And we'll look more at the process that goes on, but the emphasis here is the fact that the Jews rejected the gospel of Christ. They refused to believe that there is good news. There's some in our culture who would like to suggest that all roads lead to God. And all roads somehow lead to salvation. And those who espouse this kind of a worldview say that all that really matters is faith. And religion in general. But believing, having faith. And others will say that it's it's spirituality, right? And and not religion that really counts with God. How many times have you 
how those conversations, where he's really a, a spiritual kind of guy. She's really nice. Well, she she believes, but but in fine. Yet the Bible is very clear that without believing in Christ, the word of Christ, there is no salvation. When Peter and John went before the council in, in Acts chapter 4, they said this, this Jesus is a stone that you rejected, but the, by, they were, he was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other path. Jesus is it. No Muhammad. He is not it. No morality. That's not it. The only name by which you can be saved is by the name of Jesus. You see, part of the mo motivation for the declaration of the gospel is a simple and the absolutely clear teaching for the, from the Bible that there is no other way for salvation apart from believing in Jesus Christ. No other name. There's no other means for atonement or the covering or the forgiveness of sins except from Jesus. So your spiritual co-worker or your religious family member or neighbor or whoever is, a, is lost and eternally so lost apart from a relationship with Christ. And friend, I fear that you don't feel the way it does. I don't think we feel the weight of the lostness of our friends and our neighbors. There's, there's no other way for people to be saved from their sins. We need to know firmly in our mind and feel deeply in our heart that if people die in their sins without turning to Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, there is no forgiveness of sins and there is no hope for them. Israel rejected their only hope for redemption. And the same is true for many of our friends and neighbors and co-workers. So Paul then turns to two questions as it relates to Israel's culpability as it relates to just their general unbelief. Did, did they even hear? Did Israel hear this good news? And did they understand this good news? Those are the two questions that Paul is asking. Is it possible they didn't hear this good news? Is it possible that maybe they just didn't understand this good news? So verse 18 answers the question regarding hearing with a simple answer in, the Old, in an Old Testament quotation. Paul says, yes, indeed. They heard the message. And he quotes Psalm 19, verse 4, a text within the context of Psalm 19 that refers to the global display of God's glory through creation. Here, however, Paul is using it as a statement that the gospel has been extended to the entire world. It's been extended. And Paul's not saying here that there is absolutely no need for, for global missions anymore, as if the work has been done, that it's been accomplished. Instead, he is reinforcing that Israel heard the gospel. And proof is that the gospel has been even proclaimed among the Gentiles. They even heard this good news. So verse 19 addresses the question regarding whether or not Israel understood the gospel. The, the issue is whether or not they should have expected a Gentile mission to go forward. And Paul cites Deuteronomy 32 as proof that the Old Testament foretold of this moment in her history when non-Jewish people would be welcomed into the people of God. 
Moses himself suggested that God would use mercy to other nations as a means to rebuke and seek a repentance of Israel. So this section in verses 10 concludes in verses 20 and 21 with a summary of the sad rea reality as it relates to Israel. God had graciously extended his grace to people who were not seeking him. While Israel consistently rebels and resists against God. In Isaiah 65, there's a quote here to, to emphasize God's graciousness and Israel's stubbornness. Verse 21 is really pointed if you really look at it. Can you hear the beleagueredness? I hear it as a parent, kind of intimate parents of you have children. In that kind of voice, all day long, I have held out my hand to a disobedient people and to a contrary people all day long. I've done it. And, and so the sad reality with Israel is that despite the prophecies, despite the, the blessings that God has poured out on his children, and, and the pleadings, and the pleadings, and the prophets, and the prophets, and the prophets, and the prophets, there is very little receptivity to the gospel. With all these references to the prophet Isaiah, I'm reminded even about the prophet Isaiah's calling to ministry. If you, if you know anything about the story of Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah beholds the beauty of God. He has this, this experience where, and some of you probably think the song, right? But there's a song about this, this experience. The, the whole throne room of God is filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah was beholding this, this experience that really, in reality, he should never experience because he would have been obliterated. But he, he's experienced, experiences this, and he was overwhelmed with the holiness and the beauty of God. And there was a responding to this calling to ministry. And I, Isaiah receives a very, very hard ministry. One which most, 99.9% .9 of pastors would say, I, I don't want this. I want a ministry that is going to be fruitful. I want the kind of ministry when I walk into the doors, people are greeting me, they are loving me. I want the kind of ministry that when I preach a simple message, and it can be a, just a little humble. I don't care what it is. If I give you one verse, the people just respond to the grace of God. And they think, oh, here I am, Lord. Here I am, take me. That's the kind of ministry that many pastors want and desire. Where their churches are multiplying. Where there's multi-sites. And there's church planting movements going on left and right. But Isaiah, his entire ministry is preaching to people who will never Never corporately respond to the gospel. Sign up for that one. <laughs> Isaiah 6 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And he was to continue that ministry until the judgment of God came. How long, O Lord? Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants. <clears throat> Isaiah's ministry from God was one of faithful preaching and fruitless results. So, what do we make of this sad reality? A few things. The gospel, as we'll see in, in a minute or two, is, is worth proclaiming regardless of the response. 
the wild response is absolutely glorious and it's absolutely motivating and it's chilling and it's heartwarming, all those things. The possibility or the improbability of a response should not ever be our primary motivation in sharing the gospel. Or we will become easily discouraged or overly programmatic. We should also see that God, in his sovereignty, is working out his plan. And we have no idea, our minds have no idea which season of life God has chosen for us. I have no idea what season of life God has called for me as a pastor with Mitzio Day. You have no idea what season of life this really is in the great big scheme of things. We must declare the gospel regardless of our circumstances while trusting in God's plan. One of the early missionaries in the uh, late 17, early 1800s, a man whose last name is Judson, he was a Congregationalist and a, a Baptist, so forgive me for using him as an example. But he was a missionary to Burma. And he was there for 40 years. 40 years. And during those 40 years, he only saw 18 converts in his first 12 years of ministry. But at his death, after his death, there were in that area that have never heard the gospel before that missionary came to He planted seeds of the gospel. Seeds that we never saw before. If you have someone in, in your world, in your circle, in your friend circle, in your, your family circle, who is just absolutely resistant, stubborn, hard-hearted, pause. Get the name. You got that person? Might even be a spouse. You might be a father or mother. If you have someone who you feel is beyond the reach of the gospel, because it is the gospel not just because it might be received but it is the gospel because it could be received and God could do something amazing, something powerful life changing if he so wills and let me remind you that history is filled with people who have no idea what the fruit of their life and what their witness would be So we've already looked now at the sad reality of kind of Israel. Let's go back to the verses that I skipped over and see what Paul says about this process of conversion, this story of hope. These two verses are quite unusual. There's no other place in the Bible where Paul identifies the steps in receiving Christ quite so clearly. Verses 14 and 15 kind of feature four questions and steps. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe? Uh, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? These verses are an extension of where we left Romans chapter 10 back in August. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. saved. They're going to be saved. We saw this wide open door for evangelism for anyone. But here's the thing. People are saved through a divinely designed, ordained process.
well, it's true that there's a, a sovereign plan that everything, uh, behind everything that happens. And while it's true that the invitation is wide open, the means by which conversion happens involves sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. Those five things. So take note that divine election, as true as it is, never saves anyone. The wide door of, of the wide door doesn't save anyone either. The door is open. That doesn't save anybody. To be saved, a person must call because they believe, because they have heard, because someone preached, because someone was sent. The mission of God to save people from their sins is only accomplished through this beautiful gospel chain. So first, calling. Working through this text kind of backwards for the conversion process, we find that in verse 14, it tells us that those who are saved are those who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what does it mean to call? Calling on the Lord means to express one's real confidence in and to rely upon God for deliverance and help. I'm calling on you. Think of, the, think of the flood that has been going on, uh, the hurricanes that have been going on. Some people just don't just sit back and do nothing. What do they do? They call out. They, they're requesting help. Deliver me. So from rooftops are being called. Boats are coming in because people are just, I'm over here. Help me. I need help. So that is what calling is. Calling expresses your confidence in God. And your, your desire to, to, to rely on him for deliverance and help. Psalm 18, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. I'll call upon him. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. And to call and all who call on him in truth. To be a Christian means that a person calls upon the name of the Lord. To be a Christian means that people stop looking to him or herself, but calls upon the Lord for help and deliverance. The next one is believing. The calling is based upon more than just the need for help. The, call, the calling is rooted and grounded in saving belief. Back in August, we read, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. To, to believe means to place one's trust in and count as true what the Bible says about yourself. I believe this about me. And I believe this about you. Saving faith and, and belief is placing one's hope in the promises of God's word. It's resting your life and eternity in all that the Bible says about you, about your sin, the cross, and forgiveness. But it requires another thing, hearing. This is the next step that Paul mentions in order to emphasize the practical reality of the witness of the gospel. People cannot believe if they have never heard the message of the gospel. We, we wonder why... Evangelism doesn't work when we just want to be nice people. Right? I was really nice. I mowed their yard. I brought them food. Those are great things. But how are they to be saved if they have never heard? People cannot believe if they haven't heard the message of the gospel. Spirituality, being religious, or belief alone never saves anyone. Unless a person believes in Jesus Christ, there is no hope for eternal life. And that means that God has appointed for the heart to be engaged through hearing. Friends, the world has 6,600 unreached people groups who are not only unevangelized, they will never hear the name of Jesus unless something dramatic 
there are over three billion people who will never hear the name of Jesus. Is that waiting for you? Are we going to be able to just go upstairs and get a donut hole in a little bit and move along so you can have your pot roast and sit on the back deck before dinner? Or is this going to sit heavy in your heart that there are six, sorry, three billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus? And it's not just that they don't believe. The problem is that they will never hear. And if they don't hear, they cannot believe. The next one is preaching. This relates to the actual proclamation of the gospel message. And some of you are going, thank God this word is in here, because that takes me out of the seat, right? Because I'm not called to be a preacher. You're the preacher's room. Well, it's funny how we can use these phrases uh, that are misappropriated in the first place. Have you heard this phrase? Preach the gospel at all times. And when, yeah, yeah, keep yes. on. And when necessary, use words. Have you heard that phrase? The one, he never said it. Two, it's a popular statement for those who just want to emphasize the value of doing good works and for, for the gospel uh, mission and witness, but as opposed to declaring gospel words. Declare the gospel message. Now, I, I'm going to tell you, preaching, street corner preaching, i got a friend, Leon Brown, from uh, who lives in Virginia. He's a minister at Crown and Joy Presbyterian Church. He goes onto the campuses of college, and he does street preaching. And watching him, he is brilliant, but he's on screen. He preaches from his heart. He preaches, hoping that someone will hear, that the word of God will fall on their heart. The kind of preaching that we're talking about here is announcing, heralding, declaring. That's what preach means. The reason that this news is, is treated in this way is because there's some importance here. There's some urgency here. You, you need to declare you are an ambassador of Christ's kingdom. Every one of you is an ambassador. And you're saying, listen, I've got good news. And you need to hear this good news. And I want to do it gently. I want to do it within context. I want to do it based on relationship. And I want to do it because I really do care for you. I love you so much. But I need to actually use my words to tell you about this Savior. I need to tell you, use my words to tell you about your condition, about you and God, God's hatred for sin, but God's provision for life. Every one of you is called to preach the gospel. That's your responsibility. And the last one is sending. The Greek word here, from which we get the word apocalypse. And it means to be dispatched, especially as it's related to a message. So a person is dispatched with a message. I've got some good news. And in the, that, that time period, if there was a message that needed to go out to the entire Roman Empire, how did they do it? Herald. By dispatch. A person, an ambassador of the, of the emperor, would go out with a message, and in the town square, and in wherever he could get an audience, he would dispatch, dispatch. he would share the news that needed to be shared. We see the word used very interestingly in Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the 
labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you, sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Notice that they were sent into the harvest. And they were sent out as lambs in the midst of wolves. What does that sound like? It sounds like a party, right? But that's the reality. The mission is not necessarily going to be easy for you. But more, I don't think that this is limited to just a first century uh, disciple or people in full-time ministry. Everyone in this room who has called on the name of the Lord and believes in him for their salvation, each one of them is to be sent. Our, our mission in life is to be ambassadors for Christ, carrying this message of reconciliation to a world that desperately needs it. We carry this message of hope, of love, and healing. But our God is merciful. And the gospel is delivered through people who are sent. So, is this how you view your life as a disciple of Christ? As a sent one? Can you show up in those both angles? That's the first thing that you said? as a person who is actually on mission from God. <coughs> the reality is it's very easy for a lot of different things to kind of clog our lives, right? We, we can, our career can get in the way, raising kids can get in the way, developing friendships, finding a spouse, finishing your education, so on and so forth. All these things can have the potential to diminish the calling that is on each and every one of our lives. But I gotta, but I gotta. Well, but this is who you are. And that's what you do. You are an ambassador. That's who you are in Christ. And I think that this text is, is a very important reminder and it's even a caution as to the importance of understanding each and every one of our mission in life. The means by which people are saved involves a process, one that specifically involves you. And we need to be careful that we don't forget why God has placed us on the earth and what it means to follow after Christ. The divinely designed process for the conversion of people involves you and me. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So the last thing is, the last part of verse 15. Paul uses an Old Testament quotation from uh, Isaiah 52, which is contextually referring to the news about the end of the captivity. Captivity is coming to an end. Here's some good news. In verse 15, the second half says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What in the world does that mean? I mean, if I come up to you and say, Hey, touch my feet. Look at these beautiful feet. I know there's hand models, right? <laughs> but feet models, and they're beautiful. I have seen some knobby, nappy looking feet. Feet that nobody really wants to touch. 
And there's a reason why we spend gajillions of dollars in covering our feet. Finding good, sturdy shoes to cover our feet. Paul could have, uh, could have chosen other body parts. Ones that are far more noticeable and far more attractive. But he, he is rejoicing in a vehicle by, by which the gospel is being carried. So instead of saying, look how beautiful are those luscious lips that share the good news, or how beautiful are the, the legs and the thighs and the calves that are nicely sculpted, that carry the message, where Paul says, beautiful are your feet. Does not be smelling ones. The things that I'm telling you, why do you choose feet? I think it's because feet are so important and relatively unattractive and unnoticed. We have to look hard to make feet attractive. Hard. The reason we spend so much money on shoes and fixing our feet is because they're just not attractive. Feet are smelly, dirty, but yet functional parts of the body that are necessary for a good life. And that's the power of what Paul is saying here. He is saying functional, smelly, dirty, normal, and unattractive feet are beautiful. Why? Or when? When they are carrying the gospel. The gospel makes feet beautiful because they are carrying the gospel. The gospel takes ordinary, ordinary things, smelly things, and what does it do? The gospel makes them extreme. And that's even a picture of our lives, isn't it? God takes normal, everyday, messed up, broken, knobby, ingrown toenail kind of people, and what does he do? He makes them beautiful. Because we, we are ambassadors. We are carrying the most beautiful message to be ever told. So how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Very beautiful. But let me adjust it by ways of application. How beautiful is the backyard grill that is used to preach the good news? How beautiful is vacation Bible school that is used to invite your neighbors? How beautiful is a summer job that opens up doors of conversation about the gospel? How, how beautiful is an invitation to a neighbor to come with you your dining room table. How beautiful is an invitation to your neighbor to join you in learning and growing. How beautiful is a lawnmower that is used to extend the grace of God for an unsaved man. How beautiful is a soccer or football or baseball game that opens up the door for gospel conversation. You get the point? This year day church, this is something that we need to think about and we need to grow in together. For all the strengths that our, our little ministry, our church has, for all the great things that God is doing here and, and, and even abroad, and for all the amazing opportunities that are yet untapped here in the Lincoln Way area, let's not forget why we are here and what God has called us to do. So I'm going to encourage you, strongly encourage you, don't waste your life. With the start of school, be the kind of people who use normal, everyday life gifts to make much of the gospel. To share it with your teachers. 
the classmates. Restless. Don't waste your life on getting so busy and cluttered with stuff and overly programmed that you miss the opportunities that are right in front of you. Parents, meet your parents. You have great gifts of kids, but they're not the end. They need to see you at work sharing about the greatest story ever. There's nothing greater than seeing God at work. But in order for people to call upon the Lord, they have to believe and they've got to hear and they're never going to profess their faith in Christ unless somebody who is sent shares the good news. I pray for our church in this next season of life that we will be filled with people who love to preach the good news in normal, organic everyday kind of ways. And that we together can praise God for the lives that he is regenerating and making over. Amen. Love God. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we know that we are here this morning because you have called us here, but you have also called us here to re-remind us of the beauty of the gospel and how that gospel is to go out. Lord, I pray that you would give this church beautiful feet because they are carrying the message of reconciliation to a lost and broken world. Would you encourage the hearts of men, women, and children as they go out like lambs amidst, amidst the wolves? Encourage them. Keep them safe. Keep them looking to you, Lord. Comfort them in their times of loss and frustration. And we trust you, Lord. You are the one who is sending the harvest. You are the Lord of the harvest. We are your one.